Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the 21st chapter of the book of Acts. As we continue our journey, we are now coming to a third major section of the book where Paul moves on to Jerusalem and ultimately Rome. It was Martin Luther who said the following, The Bible is alive, it speaks to me. The Bible has feet, it runs after me. The Bible has hands, it lays hold of me. Please hear now the word of the living God. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found ship, a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and, were greeted the, uh, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that your word would have powers that goes forth as the Holy Spirit takes it, plants it in our hearts. We pray that we would be open and teachable and responsive and humble before you. And we pray that you would speak to us clearly. And we pray that what you do in us will bring about the change in us that is so necessary as we are all being conformed to the image of your beloved Son. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Up until this point, 
the narrative of Paul shows him very much in control of his own life. He makes plans, he sets goals, and he reaches them. He determines to go to certain places and plant churches. Uh, in those places and in general, he's able to do that. But from the moment of his arrival in Jerusalem, Paul's life is going to change very radically. He is arrested and imprisoned, and the rest of his career is a set of reactions to the opposition and assault of his enemies. Before he was on the offensive, now we will see Paul more on the defensive. His history, as given in Acts chapters 13 through 20, followed the three missionary journeys, but his history in Acts 21 to 28 is a series of five trials and what happened in between them. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what was Luke's purposes in giving us such a d detailed report of the literal trials and tribulations of Paul? What was his authorial intent in doing so? In authorial intent is always a good question to ask when you're studying any passage of the Bible. What is it that the author intends to communicate? And in this case, I believe there are a number of things that Luke wants us to see in the rest of the book of Acts. First, he wants to encourage us to see that though Paul was utterly vulnerable to both hostile enemies and indifferent government officials, God protected him and moreover used his vulnerability and his sufferings to take the gospel to all sorts of places that it would have never otherwise gone. Let me repeat that because Sometimes when we're walking with the Lord and we see a place where we believe God wants us to go, we meet great resistance and everything seems harder. And it seems like maybe we didn't really see the Lord open this door and we're going uh, in a way we shouldn't go. But in this case, Paul, Luke wants us to see that Paul was vulnerable to enemies and government officials, but God protected him and used his vulnerability and his sufferings to take the gospel to all sorts of places it would have not otherwise go, gone. We know how much Paul wanted to take the gospel to Rome, which was the center of the ancient world, the Roman Empire, the heart of the Gentile world. But look at how Paul finally gets there. He gets there in chains. Doubtless, he often prayed that God would open such a door, but he never imagined God would answer prayer like this. So we learn about the goodness and yet the sovereignty of God as he leads us. Luke also wants, us to, show, uh, wants to show us how increasingly the gospel has become something that pagan and Gentile people hear and accept. They are a very eager and um, reachable audience. Of all the gospel writers, Luke himself has the greatest desire to show the universal appeal and spread of the gospel to all, no matter what social condition, no matter what race, culture, no matter what psychological condition, no matter what moral condition. It is no surprise that the last journey of Paul covered in Acts 21 to 28 is from Jerusalem 
to Rome. This is Luke's way to show us that the gospel begins in a particular time and place in Jerusalem and Palestine. Its destiny is to cover the entire earth because the book of Revelation tells us that at the end there will be people from every tribe, kindred, and nation gathered around the throne. So what do we learn as we look at verses 1 through 9, which is a little bit like a travelogue or Paul's itinerary, and obviously Luke is with him traveling because the word we is used often, and the details given would be more likely given by someone who was present. But what do we learn about the strength of Christian fellowship and the way in which it's carried out? The teaching of these few verses is that we are to rejoice in and cling strongly to Christian friends. Let me repeat that. We are to rejoice in and cling strongly to Christian friends. The importance of fellowship is seen in that Paul had to tear himself away from the church at Ephesus and its leadership. The bonds were extremely strong and intimate. Furthermore, it is obvious that Paul was tremendously supported along the way by Christians he knew and those he did not know. The church at Tyre was probably the result of the dispersion of the Christians after the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. But we have no indication that Paul was the founder of this church in Tyre. Yet the people were very eager to help him and took him in with a great deal of warmth. This is remarkable, uh, a, a remarkable benefit of being a Christian is that you have brothers and sisters all around the world that you can enter fellowship with very quickly on the basis of your common commitments. You know, one thing I've noticed about people who abuse drugs and whatever is they are able to spot and recognize other drug abusers just like that. And sometimes it's almost like, how do they know? Is, it, is there a certain thing about them that gives off the idea that I'm a drug abuser? Well, we could name some. But my point is, Christians sometimes have a sense of knowing other Christians. You can see it in a person's time. You can sense it in people sometimes. And so the family of God is the family of God. And you can enter into fellowship very quickly on the basis of your common commitments. The way that fellowship was expressed here first was through taking him into their homes and feeding him. That was hospitality. Hospitality in the Bible means the love of strangers. Paul receives Christian hospitality in at least four places. In verse 4, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 16, Christians shared their possessions through open homes. Second, through visible and physical expressions of affection. It is impressive, as we saw in chapter 20, verse 36, the disciples knelt to pray together. And um, they embraced, and they kissed, and they wept. Of course, due to COVID, we can fist bump, we can elbow bump, or we can uh, wave from a distance. But Paul's connection to these believers was special. There was a sharing of affection, a showing of solidarity expressed in a physical way through very open hearts. 
Third, though, pray through praying together. Notice how often this happens in the text. We could say that Christians shared their Christian faith through their open spirits. They clearly talked about their relationship with Christ and spoke to Him together. They worshiped together. Fourth, they sought the guidance of the Spirit together. Some of the Christians, through the Spirit, urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. We'll discuss that in a moment because it appears to some that there's a contradiction in the text, but there really isn't, but we'll talk about it. But the point for now is to see that together they sought God's will as a community. There was a connectedness. There was the sense of the body. You know, and in, in the body, if your toe hurts, sometimes it can hurt your whole body. Uh, if your head hurts, you're probably worthless. But the imagery there is, there is a connectivity. We grieve together. We rejoice together. We encourage one another. We rebuke one another. Uh, we love one another. We forgive one another. All those things are part of the body of Christ. It, their faith wasn't just a private matter. It was for sharing and discussing and fellowshipping together with. Now, if we look other places in the New Testament, uh, New Testament such as Romans 12, uh, Titus 1, 1 Peter 4, Hebrews 13, Leviticus 19, and Acts 16, we will see a lot about the importance uh, and the expression of hospitality among believers and how we can practice it. The Christian grace and responsibility of hospitality is assumed through every one of these passages. When we do a little digging, we can see that it was extremely an extremely important part of the Christian lifestyle. First, the importance. Titus 1.8 shows us that it is required of leaders in the church. Titus 1.8 shows the importance of hospitality. Without this, as a quality and a practice, a man could not be an elder in the church. One of the spiritual gifts in 1 Peter 4, verses 9 through 10 indicates that practicing hospitality was seen as a gift of the Spirit, a spiritual gift, a ministry of God's grace in its various forms. The two verses could be read, exercise hospitality, and whatever your spiritual gift is, use it in doing so. A fundamental response to God's hospitality, Peter tells us, that hospitality should be without grumbling. It should not be seen as a duty, but rather a privilege and a response to the grace of God who has granted us great hospitality in saving us. This is beautiful since Peter is intimating that our hospitality to others is analogous to God's hospitality to us. God has opened his home to us by making us part of his household. When Lydia became a Christian, hospitality was one of her first responses to the gospel. Another indication that an open home uh, goes along naturally with an open heart. And so the ministry of hospitality, perhaps you can't teach a Sunday school class. Perhaps you're not good at standing up in front of people or speaking. Or perhaps you're not really good at other ministry uh, responsibilities within the church. But hospitality is such a needed, important, significant ministry. And perhaps God has uniquely gifted you to do that. It's a great way to build up the body of Christ. 
We've seen not only the importance of hospitality, but the expression in Romans 12, the link of share with those who are in need with hospitality, shows that the basic principle of hospitality is really generosity with your material goods and your resources. In Leviticus 19, though it speaks of Israel's corporate hospitality to non-citizens and foreigners, it gives us a very practical principle for our individual hospitality. We must treat guests as one of our own. Hospitality is not entertaining, but rather receiving and accepting the guest as a part of the family. Hebrews 13.2 shows us that we are to offer hospitality to people who are newcomers or otherwise not close friends. It means to be very open to new people. A hospitable person is very open to new relationships. 1 Peter 4.9 says it should be done without grumbling. That means the attitude and demeanor is as important as the hospitality as the generosity with time and needs. Warmth and open-heartedness probably means that hospitality, while a responsibility for every Christian and a natural response to God's grace, is also a spiritual gift that some people are better at than others. It may mean that some people who, for example, are naturally extroverted and have a lower need for privacy have a greater capacity for it than others. But a person with a special gift of hospitality should be sure that he or she gets into a position to exercise it. There are also different seasons in people's lives in which hospitality is more of a possibility. It takes several kind of margins in order to be generous and hospitable. It means you must have the time, the money, the emotional capital to be able to spend it. But in summary, the Greek word for hospitality means literally love for strangers. Put a little differently, it means a love for new people. It is a willingness to open your heart to new people and to provide them with practical help out of your resources. One of the ways we as a church can impact this community, which we all long and want to do, is by practicing hospitality. When was the last time you met someone new and invited them into your home? Or perhaps you, you, you're not able to do that. I understand that. Perhaps you took them out to lunch or perhaps uh, invited them for coffee or invited them to a Bible study. But, there, you know, one of, the, one of the things about thinking about hospitality is where do we live? We live in Las Vegas, Nevada. What is one of the prevailing characteristics of this city? Lots of transients. There's lots of new people in that almost keep up with the people leaving, okay? This place, there's a lot of turnover. I, I at one time, estimated in my first six years here that we lost 33 to 38% of our membership every year through moving, so we had to be growing at an astronomical rate to break even. It is amazing. But one of the things we can do when people move here, most of the time they don't have family here. They don't have friends here. They were sent here either by the military or sent here by their job. And so they land here and they don't have any connections. And this can be one of the most lonely cities in the universe. People are starved for connection. People are starved for somebody to reach out 
and minister to them. One of the things we're going to be doing here at Spring Meadows is a ministry to college students showing hospitality, reaching out to college students at UNLV, partnering with other Christian ministries there to... Uh, and, and it might be a, a, a plan for you to adopt uh, one of these students as someone you show hospitality to, someone you love on uh, and encourage and support and advise and provide counsel for. But what a wonderful place we live to show people a welcomeness and an openness, an openness of heart. And there's a great need for it. You'll be doing... <coughs> excuse me, an important ministry if with the biblical paradigm of grace and welcome in your mind you do a fairly simple action of greeting and welcome uh, to the constant flow of new faces. Remember hospitality is a love for new people. It's a willingness to make friends. Now I know I'm beating this horse but I'm beating this horse for a reason. Some of you are just very gifted in showing hospitality. And I have benefited from your hospitality. And your hospitality to me has made me want to be hospitable and reach out to others because that is our calling. But the essential principle of hospitality is generosity with material things, practical help to put our resources in the service of someone new. It is basically getting out of yourself and giving toward others. Now, Paul, in Acts, as we've gone through the entire book, has been the beneficiary of wonderful, gracious hospitality again and again. Now, the second thing I wanted to mention from this text is something about the guidance of the Holy Spirit. At first glance, when you read this opening 16 verses, the messages from the Spirit seem to have contradicted one another. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says that he is going to Jerusalem compelled by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was telling Paul to take the journey. Yet, when he arrives in Tyre, some of the disciples warned Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 21, verse 4. They urged him not to go. Then Agabus... Later on, begins a prophecy uh, and says, the Holy Spirit says, and then proceeds to warn Paul that he will be imprisoned in Jerusalem, though this prophecy was not a direct request to avoid the journey, as in 21.4, but Paul refused to change his course and resisted these messages, though they were brought forth in the power of the Spirit with loving tears. Was Paul rebelling against or refusing the Spirit? But that's not really the right question since Paul says the Spirit himself was leading him to Jerusalem. So the question is, was the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? Well, the po first possible answer we can rule out immediately. It is impossible that the Spirit was literally contradicting himself. He's God. He can't do that. In order to do that, he would have to be and not be God at the same time and at the same relationship. And that's not who he is. The second interpretation we can rule out is that what Paul was disobeying the Spirit. Why can we eliminate these? Not on the basis of some dogmatic presupposition, but on the basis of a common sense approach to Luke himself. Unless he was incredibly unperceptive, which we know he was not, 
Luke could not have understood this as a real conflict. Luke certainly would, would know that the readers would not believe that the Holy Spirit could contradict himself. And since he records all this without a comment, he obviously did not understand it that way. So in his mind and Paul's, there was nothing inconsistent here. Also, anyone can see there that Luke greatly admires Paul's courage and integrity. He's holding him up as an example for us. Thus, Luke would not want us to understand this action of Paul as any kind of disobedience to God at all. Neither Luke nor Paul understood it as such. It is therefore our job to understand how this fits together. But we must realize that the incoherence is not due to the Scriptures, but to our limited understanding of the Scriptures. A third way of looking at it that is possible but very unlikely is to conclude that the speakers in verse chapter 21 and verse 4 only thought they were inspired by the Spirit, but they were not. The trouble with that interpretation is that then we would be forced to question every straightforward statement of the Spirit's influence as only the subjective belief by the persons that the Spirit was influencing them. How could we be sure we are understanding anything that Luke says? Virtually the only possible uh, solution to this is that while the Spirit was giving them real insight about Paul's future suffering, their interpretation of what he should be doing about it was mistaken. In other words, it is true that the Holy Spirit showed them all that his going to Jerusalem was going to involve him in the worst suffering, maybe even death, hardship, difficulty. Surely, Paul, we love you. We don't think you should go to Jerusalem. It may mean the end of you. And so Luke's statement is a condensed way of saying that the warning was divine, but the urging for him not to go was human. After all, the Spirit's word to Paul combined the compulsion to, uh, to go with a warning of the consequences. In other words, Paul had also been shown that he would suffer greatly in Jerusalem. But along with that leading, uh, warning was a leading of the Spirit that he should go anyway, that the sufferings would be used by God. Agabus also was shown, uh, has, was shown that Paul would suffer there. But the Tyre Christians concluded from this that he shouldn't go. They were wrong about his fate, uh, and, uh, they, and that moved him to urge him not to go. Stott, John Stott, points out that if Paul had heeded the Tyrian Christians, then Agabus's prophecy would have not been fulfilled, and he would have been a false prophet. Thus, the loving Christians of Tyre were obviously wrong in what they extrapolated from that which the Spirit had given them. Now, this is an extremely instructive incident for everybody sitting in this room. We must never, ever give counsel or advice with divine authority unless it is the plain teaching of the Bible. God has not called me to be your Holy Spirit. And God has not called you to be my Holy Spirit, okay? And so it's very dangerous. For example, you can tell your married friend you must break off your extramarital adulterous affair. 
There's no doubt about it. This is not opinion level stuff. This is God's word. God says so. Or you can say, you must forgive your mother. There's no doubt about it. That's not anybody's opinion. God makes that clear. We are to forgive. However, when it comes to advice about life choices in areas where the Bible has not spoken, we must always offer our advice with humility and allow it to be open to contradiction and discussion. We can never say, God has shown me that you should leave this church and go to another one, mine. Or God wants you to... uh, to uh, not marry this person. God has shown me you're not to marry this person. There's no doubt about it and so on. We can even perhaps say, I've felt a burden to speak to you about this. I could be wrong or partially wrong, nevertheless, but I feel pretty clear about it in my own mind. Uh, When I was uh, teaching a college and career ministry in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, lots of people in that ministry were seeking God's will for various things. Uh, going to school, what they were going to do as a career, who they were going to marry. And I remember talking to one guy, and he said, I'm I'm really struggling with about who I am to marry. He said, "Uh, I really like her, and I think she's a godly woman. He said, but I'm not the least bit attracted to her. You know, I'm listening to this guy, and I'm trying to get, you know, get spiritual with him. You know, I understand his heart, but he said, I just, I'm not attracted to her in the least. He said, what should I do? And there was a guy standing there beside me who said, I'll tell you what I did. He said, I got on this major street in the city, and if I got all the lights green, I was going to ask her to marry me. And if I got uh, one of them red, I knew it was a red light not to go. Now, people are like that. It's ridiculous. They're like that. At the present time, many Christians take it upon themselves to invoke divine wisdom for their advice. And it's very dangerous. I knew of a church movement. It wasn't actually a formed, organized church. But there was a movement in the southeast by a group of charismatic people called the shepherding movement. And so they would commit themselves to one elder in their church who happened to be their pastor. And he would tell them where to live, which job they were to work, who they were to marry, who they could and could not marry, how many children to have, and all these details. And I said, well, you know, that's just fascism. That doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. But people go off the deep end or go to seed on this in various directions. If you say to me, God has shown me that you need to quit this job, well, there's not any possibility for discussion. Instead of seeking God's will together in fellowship with you, I either have to accept what you say is God's uh, word, or I have to reject you as a false prophet. It is clear here that the Christians were not shocked or offended that Paul resisted their advice. They were only sad about it. This is important. If they really believed that their insights were infallible revelations from God, then surely they would have challenged Paul as being disobedient to God. But the fact that they were not outraged showed that their spiritual insights were offered to one another humbly in the knowledge that they might be only partially right in their interpretation uh, and application. So it's important to seek wisdom. It's a, there's a multitude of, of, there is safety in a multitude of counselors. And sometimes it's important 
to check ourselves and, and run by people who we know have the wisdom of God when we're making life-changing decisions. But stay away from <laughs> and be careful of anybody who knows God's personal will for your life because nobody does. I don't know it. Nobody else knows it. I have a hard enough time. You know, it used to be easy for me when I was a young Christian to figure out God's will because my life was so out of whack. And so, so it's pretty easy to say, well, you need to quit doing that. That's stupid. And, you know, God hates that. But uh, as I've gotten older, it, it's not easier. And sometimes you just have to move on the light that you currently have and your convictions about it. Uh, the Bible says delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart that doesn't mean he gives you anything you want but if you're delighting in him he gives you what himself and he will guide our steps he is sovereign we can trust him we can rest in him now I could say something about the New Testament office of prophecy these prophets in the New Testament are not like Old Testament prophets who brought us the scriptures uh, and New Testament prophets were always judged and evaluated by higher authority of the apostolic teaching. And once the canon of Scripture was complete, the necessity for the gift of prophecy faded to where it was not, in my judgment, valid anymore. Now, one last thing before we go. And that is this. Paul was resolute despite adverse circumstances. Paul felt there was nothing else he could do. He had to go to Jerusalem no matter what it cost him. What keeps the disciples calm in such circumstances? What kept Paul resolute despite the protestations of other disciples was uh, his commitment. Limiting ourselves to Paul's letter to the Philippians for a moment, we can surmise that Paul had his eye on several things. First, Paul understood that Jesus never asked us to do anything without the assurance of his presence. That was to be Paul's word to the Philippians when he would later find himself in prison in Rome, that they were to be anxious about nothing because the Lord is at hand. In the words of Richard Baxter, Christ leads us through no darker rooms than he went through before, and he that to God's kingdom comes must enter by that door. Second, at every stage, Paul was reassured that his Savior had been there before him. Who else went to Jerusalem and was crucified? The Lord Jesus. We're called to a life of self-denial and cross-bearing. You know, it's easy to say the word self-denial. It's easy to talk about dying to yourself. But it goes against every ounce of our being. To deny myself, take up the cross, and follow him means I have no will of my own. My will has been broken into submission to him. Some of us are still arguing about that. That needs to be over with. We are to have no will of our own when it comes to following Jesus. And we are called to a life of self-denial. We're to have the mind of Christ, who being in the form of God, his deity not something to reach out for because it was already his, nevertheless denied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Third, the experience of suffering on the part of the apostle fulfilled the law of harvest. The experience of death in one brings about the experience of life in another. Jesus, in John chapter 12 and verse 24, said, Except a corn of wheat die, fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. It brings forth much fruit. So a life of self-denial, a life of serving Christ, produces fruit. He told the Philippians that even though he was in chains, there were those among the palace guard who had come to hear about Jesus Christ. No matter the difficulty of God's demands, we are given along with them a spirit-enabled ability to do what he asks because Paul tells us, in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who is my strength. He assured them of that. So Paul was much like the Lord Jesus. Uh, unable, these people unable to persuade uh, Paul to pursue safety rather than obedience... The Christians surrendered to God's sovereign authority, echoing the prayer of submission in Gethsemane, let the will of the Lord be done. It will be done in any case, ultimately, despite our fears, it will be good for his children who trust in Jesus. And so in this text, we see some powerful things at work. When I read this text today, I, I, or this week, and I read it over and over and spent much time praying through it and thinking about it. What struck me was, is that how, don't get me wrong on this altogether, we make our plans and God laughs at us sometimes. Uh, I have never planned in my life to take a step that would lead me into suffering. I know it's going to happen, but I'm not looking for it. Okay? I have never in my life done anything for the Lord where it was a straight line. It's never a straight line. I mean, it goes all over the place. And you get stretched and tested beyond your measure. Because I want to tell you what it's not about. It's not about my success. It's not about my reputation. It's not about who people think and believe I am or anyone's approval. It's about Jesus and what he's called me to do. Uh, I can remember missionaries going to... Uh, faraway places. It might have been C.T. Studd or someone like him. Sorry if I got the reference wrong. But I, I know of missionaries that have been sent to the field and did not have one convert for 25 years. That had to be heartbreaking. And of course, uh, humanly we go, well, obviously they weren't missionaries. You know, they didn't have a single convert. But who converts people? Jesus does. So Understand that as you live your life, you can put one word before a lot of your life, and it is unexpected. Unexpected. James tells us in his little book, and I want to read this in closing, something very wise in chapter 4. And I'm not like Martin Luther. I do not think the book of James is an epistle of straw. He changed his mind later on, to be fair, and recanted. Come now, James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town 
and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a vapor or mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so, living under the sovereign hand of God will not always make sense to you. And when you complain about it like I do, and you question the Lord about it, you're not going to get an answer sometimes. They're, they're, that's just real. That's the truth. You're not going to know why. I still don't know why my older brother got a rare disease uh, at age 11 that killed him at age 42, and I didn't. I had the same parents, same genes, Say, I don't know why. I can't tell you why. I don't know. There are lots of, there's more I don't know than I do. But we have to trust the one who did not consider it, uh, did, uh, who was willing to offer his own son up for us to redeem us, that he will make our life beautiful in his time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you <clears throat> for what the book of Acts teaches us about real life in space and time. Not so much about the sweet by and by, but a lot more about the nasty now and now. And we do pray that you would provide us wisdom and comfort and hope and insight as we, your people, pursue you. And we pray that we would suspend judging you on how our life turns out and that we would rest in your promises. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.